Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Um, let's pray for the message this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we are so grateful that we can come together like this, that we can praise your name, that we can... Um, give you the glory that you are due and the honor and the praise. And as we do so, we are so grateful that you are a good father who gives good gifts to your children, that we can receive of your Holy Spirit, that we can, uh, that we can receive more of your love for us. And so I pray as we study your word, as we look at the life of Jesus, as we try and learn from him, as his disciples learn from him, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, inform our minds and our hearts that the Word of God would become alive and active in our soul. And so we commit ourselves to you. We ask that you would uh, do a work in us that we can't achieve on our own, but that you can achieve for us by our union with you. And so we are so grateful for all that you have done and all that you will continue to do. And we praise your name, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, sometimes when you follow Jesus, Jesus will lead you to places you never expected yourself to be. And Jesus will show you things about yourself that you never noticed before. And the truth about being a disciple of Jesus is that Jesus will often make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes more than a little bit. Sometimes you will just feel uncomfortable. Because Jesus will challenge our view of how we use our money or how we use our time he challenges our priorities. He asks that we would commit all that we are and all that we have to being his followers and being his messengers on this earth. And ultimately, we do all this because he is truth, and he is life, and he is the way, and in him we find abundant life, we find eternal life. But even though all that's true, it doesn't mean that sometimes Jesus doesn't make us uncomfortable. Because to be transformed by Jesus requires that his words and his actions confront parts of us that need to be confronted. That he calls us to lay certain things down, that there's parts of us that need to be shaken and wrestled with, and parts of us that need to be laid down so we can live the abundant life in him. Any time that I read through the Gospels and I study the life of Jesus, there are moments when I feel uncomfortable. Because I feel convicted or I feel challenged. Sometimes I even question, Jesus, why did you do that? Why did you say that? What's going on in, in here? I feel unsettled. But that's actually the role of the disciple. We are to so intently watch our rabbi's life and listen to what he says that we should expect that sometimes we feel that, that we'll be confronted by our rabbi, that he'll say, there's something here in you that needs to be changed, and, and it's going to take a little bit of a wrestling. And so we should expect that sometimes our rabbi, Jesus, will challenge us, and not simply to challenge us for the sake of challenging us, but to change us, to help us view the world the way he views the world. So in preparation for this sermon series, I've been rereading um, stories of Jesus, and what I've been doing is I'm trying to imagine myself as a disciple of Jesus in the moments when these things are occurring. And for me, one of the most uncomfortable places for me to be would be in the temple when Jesus clears the temple out with a whip and he starts flipping over tables and knocking over the money. Because outside of weddings and funerals, I don't want big public displays of emotion. 
that I realize this is not appropriate. Sometimes in a church service, it's okay, um, but I'm not a big, like, public display kind of person. I'm more like, okay, let's go talk in private about this. But Jesus, I don't like when people make a big scene. It makes me very, very uncomfortable. And yet, if I was a disciple of Jesus, right, I'd be watching him make a whip, and I'm like, hey, Jesus, what are you... What are you making that whip for? We don't have any animals around. And then I watch him march into the temple. I'm like, oh, man, this isn't going to go well. And then he starts doing his thing. And I would be sort of like in the corner like, ooh, probably a better way to deal with this, right, is what I would be thinking. It would leave me really uncomfortable. I want to read the the account here. It's the the first time that Jesus clears the temple. It's in John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. The Jewish Passover was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Just imagine yourself in that situation. This is the first time that Jesus clears out the temple, and and you you can't look at this without seeing this as a really radical act. This is a radical thing to do. Like, you might disagree with how the temple is being run. You might have problems with sort of the greed. But this is, like, next level to go in and, and make this massive scene, to drive everybody out. This is a radical, you know, to put it like this, it's a radical display of anger. And you might be wondering, well, why is Jesus so intensely agitated by what he's observing here? Well, I just want to give you some some broader historical context, because I think you can kind of understand why, but I'll give you some historical context so you really understand what's going on in the temple. So it says that the money changers were there. Money changers claimed that their business in the temple was a necessity because foreign money was not accepted in the temple treasury. So to pay your temple tax and to buy your, your sacrificial animals, you couldn't use just any currency. You had to use the proper currency. So money changers said, hey, we have to be here because you've got to change your foreign currency into the proper currency. And historical records tell us that these money changers would charge two hours worth of wages to change a half shekel and the same amount again for every half shekel given in return. And so that means if a man came in with two shekels, which isn't actually that much, if he came in with two shekels, it would cost him almost a day's wage to simply change his money. Like talk about a ripoff, right? I'm coming in so I can make my sacrifice, so I can pay the temple and not, I can't even do that with the money I have. I've got to get ripped off first before I can do it. And this brought in a lot of money to the temple. And some historical records seem to imply that the high priest Annas and his sons pocketed some of that money as well. And so think about this. If you were poor, getting your sacrifices done would be an expensive endeavor. In fact, it would almost be so difficult that some people wouldn't be able to afford it. There was actually, starting around the time of Jesus, there were some Pharisees who saw the corruption of the temple, who saw the, you know, how the poor just were never going to be able to afford this, who started to say... Where two or three study the Torah, the presence of the Lord is with them. Because they started to recognize the people we serve in the villages can't even make it to the temple. They they can't even afford to go to the temple. So the corruption was fairly, people were starting to see it. And the high priest, Annas, was behind the whole thing. I mean, he approved of it. He sold franchises. There were sarcastic social commentators from the day who called the temple courts the bazaars of Annas. They didn't say, oh, that's the temple court. They said, oh, the markets of Annas are are in operation here. 
And it sold franchises to the money changers and to the animal stalls. And so corruption in the temple started at the highest level and made its way down. And so what Jesus sees is this incredibly corrupt system and just sort of this religious circus where the rich can do it and the poor are getting ripped off every single time they come into the temple. To worship God requires that they give up a a ridiculous amount of money. And so you got to imagine the scene of it too. You know, again, I, I came back from India and I was like, that's sort of what I imagine the temple courts to be is like the, the main road in Varanasi, right? Which is like, there's thousands of stalls. There's cows wandering around. There's people bartering for this and bartering for that. And the, I tried to capture it on video. It just doesn't come through on video. Like, you've got to be there to experience it. But it is this monstrous amount of noise and chaos And so imagine this, this is in the temple courts. You're coming in to worship the Most High God, and all you've got is chaos. And people are talking about money more than they're talking about God, and that's in the temple, right? Because you're bartering, right? You're bartering with the money changer. Then you've got to go buy your animals. You're bartering with the guy who's selling the animal, and you're talking all day more about money than you are about God. That really doesn't put you in in the right frame of mind to, to come in and worship. And so this, you know, Jesus in the temple is Jesus that is most angry. You've got to have some anger if you're going to flip over tables, crack a whip, and shout at crowds of people. Well, Jesus is often gentle and he's often mild, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have a righteous anger. Now, when Jesus clears the temple a second time, some people like to do it once, they do it twice. I think he does it twice. And it's recorded in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 21. Jesus explains his actions by quoting from the prophetic book of Jeremiah. A prophet who was rebuking the religious system of his day. Jesus says, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. So Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. So as disciples of the rabbi, anytime your rabbi quotes scripture, you're going to want to key in on that. Why that scripture? Why that one in particular? Well, let me read the full text of that quote. It's from Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. Jeremiah says of the Lord, Don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, The Lord's temple is here. The Lord's temple is here. But I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, and widows. Only if you stop your murdering. And only if you stop harming yourselves by worshiping idols. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Don't you yourselves admit that this temple, which bears my name, has become a den of thieves. And so that's where Jesus is quoting from. There's significance in this. Anytime your rabbi quotes scripture and anytime your rabbi displays anger, you as a disciple should pay close attention. What is going on here exactly? So on one level, it's absolutely true that Jesus is dismayed by the buyers and the sellers ripping people off and making it difficult for those without money to participate in worship and sacrifice. He's grieved by the corruption and, and the greed practiced by those religious leaders, the religious leaders who should be shepherds of God's people but really become wolves. But there's another level of understanding. Like, all that is true, but there's another level of understanding when we examine the Jeremiah text that Jesus quotes from. And let's put that Jeremiah text in with the words from Jesus in John's gospel in the first clearing of the temple, where Jesus goes on to say, when he's questioned about, you know, why did you bring a whip in here and chase everyone out? And Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, well, this temple took 46 years to build. You'll raise it up in three days? 
But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. So we understand with these words that Jesus is making this action in the temple a deeper commentary. It's deeper than just a commentary on the corruption and the greed and the exploitation that's happening. Jesus is actually making an eschatological claim. The time had come for God to judge the entire religious structure and the entire temple institution. Because the temple was meant to be a city on a hill drawing men to God, but it had become a place of barricades keeping certain people out. Jesus does not see, at this point, any hope that the temple would reform its practices. He came in once to clear it out, and then they simply picked up where they left off. And the words of Jesus lead us to see that Jesus knows that the temple is going to be destroyed. So when he quotes from the Jeremiah passage that I read from, Jeremiah is talking about the destruction of the temple. Right? He's prophesying. He's saying the temple is going to be destroyed. It's, it's not going to be here anymore. So again, put that together. Jesus quotes from the place, not where it says the temple needs to be reformed, but he quotes from the place that says the temple is going to be destroyed. Now here's the most interesting thing. Jesus is envisioning something entirely new that would replace and be greater than the temple. N.T. Wright and Michael Byrd draw this out, writing that Jesus acted and spoke during his ministry as if he was in some sense called to do and be what the temple was and did. Think about how many times Jesus said that he had forgiven someone's sins and how everyone was shocked by that because it was really preposterous for anyone to claim that they could forgive sins, but it was also preposterous to claim that you could do what should only be done in the temple. There was certain allowances made if you couldn't make it to the temple, but Jesus was already sort of functioning like, hey, you know, I'm here, so all that stuff that happens in the temple, it can be done in me. But when Jesus claims to forgive sins, it's sort of like, let's say you didn't have a Canadian passport. And I went up to you, and I took a piece of paper, and I wrote Canadian passport on it, and I gave it to you. And I said, okay, now you can travel the world. You've got a Canadian passport. I gave it to you. You'd say, no, that's not how any of this works. I have to go to the passport office. I've got to fill out paperwork. I've got to get my picture in. I can't have the light reflecting off my bald head, or they'll deny it. All that kind of stuff. You'd say, that's not how you get a passport. You have to go through the proper process. So for Jesus to say, oh, your sins are forgiven, they're like, no, no, that's not how any of that works. You've got to go to the temple. You've got to make your sacrifice. There's a, there's a procedure to this. So for Jesus to start saying, oh, I can just do it, they're like, well, then we don't need a temple. So we see that Jesus is already seeing himself as functioning as the temple. And, of course, he says it in John's gospel. Remember that postscript? He says, hey, the temple that he's talking about is his body, that he becomes the temple. And so the first followers of Jesus recognized the role of the temple had changed because of Jesus. They were free to use the temple for worship until it was destroyed by Rome in, the 70, in 70 AD. But they understood they didn't need the temple because Jesus was, as John puts it, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but the sin of all the world. And no longer was a high priest necessary because, as the author of Hebrews puts it, Jesus is our great high priest, and since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. So Jesus comes, and he's becoming the new and greater thing. That's pretty cool. So as disciples of Jesus 2,000 years removed from this temple clearing event, we, can, we have the privilege of seeing that whole grand narrative played out, and, and we can see the truth of it. But for the rest of this sermon, I want to bring us back to that moment when Jesus is angry, making a whip, driving the merchants out of the temple. As a disciple in this moment, I would start thinking to myself, 
what are the things that make my rabbi angry? We don't see his anger very often, but there are things that make Jesus angry. And I start to try and understand my rabbi's anger. What's he so angry about? What's the common theme do I see in these instances where my rabbi's anger is, being dis- is displayed? So I want to take a look at a few other places where we see Jesus becoming angry. So we can kind of understand what it is that triggers the anger of our rabbi. So first I want to go to the account of the man with the shriveled hand who's healed by Jesus. It says, Jesus entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, in order to accuse Jesus, they, this the Pharisees, were watching Jesus closely to see whether he had healed on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then Jesus said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But the Pharisees were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched out his hand, and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. It's hard to imagine a group of people so hard-hearted, so blind to good things and to truth, that they would see a crippled man standing before them and hope for his healing, not for the sake of the man to be healed, but so that they can bring a charge against the man who healed him. How twisted is that? Boy, I hope he heals him because then we're going to nail that Jesus guy. That's weird. That's a weird headspace to be in. But that's what the religious system was producing. People who are putting religious practice before the well-being of people, thinking that that's what God required. Imagine a religious system where it's illegal to heal someone on the Sabbath. A day that's supposed to be about glorifying God and resting from the day-to-day burdens of life had suddenly become a day where the sick had to suffer and where the dying received no comfort. According to the extra laws of the Pharisees, and I want to be really fair to the Pharisees here, they're just trying to protect people from breaking commandments. They have the best of intentions. They just want to protect people from breaking the commandments. And so they're like, what does it mean to work on the Sabbath? Well, maybe it means that we can't put bandages on people. That would be a form of work. Maybe that's what it means. So they came up with all these extra laws, and it became illegal to give medical care to someone on the Sabbath unless they were actively going to die. Or you could also deliver a baby that was being born, because obviously there's no real alternative, right? Like, we can't really hold that in, right? So... That's part of it, but they took it so seriously that if you tried to like put a bandage on someone's arm, they'd say, oh, you broke the Sabbath law. You're a blaspheming lawbreaker because you put a bandage on someone's arm. And again, they're just trying to worship God in the way that they know how. But when it came to the real life, you know, the practical realities of life, this harsh legalism of the Pharisees made no sense. And it became harmful, not healing, and that's what Jesus is pointing out here. Jesus is intensely angry because by strict adherence to their man-made rules, they're missing out on the heart behind the Sabbath law. I mean, what would fulfill Sabbath law more than being healed? Would you not worship more? Would you not enjoy life more? Would you not find rest from your burdens more if you were suddenly healed? But the legalism of the Pharisees is missing the heart of the law in favor of the letter of the law, and it actually drove people further from God rather than drawing them closer. And this leads us to the next place where we see Jesus getting angry. He says some radical things to the leaders and the teachers of the religious law. Like these are the things that shock me when I, when I read them. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to go into some scripture here and, and read a couple of, of his phrases. So it says, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, 
The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. And then he goes on and says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. Radical words, right? I mean, if I was to go to someone and say, you're turning someone into a son of hell, like, whoa, Right? So it doesn't explicitly say here that Jesus is angry, but I mean, I don't really think you can call someone a blind guide and a fool and a hypocrite and a son of hell without having some anger driving this. He goes on and, and says, uh, blind guides, what sorrow awaits you? For you say it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Can you just notice what they really care about? Think about all the corruption going on in the temple and how the money is moving. And they say, hey, it's not binding to swear by the temple, but it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Well, where's your heart? Blind fools, he says. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, but do not neglect the more important things. There's more in that passage. I didn't go through it all. But let's, let's see if we can put these instances of Jesus' anger together. Do we notice a common theme that's triggering his anger? Is there something that binds these, these instances of his anger together that, that makes it, we understand it? And I, What I'm seeing is from these accounts that we see that Jesus has no patience with corrupt man-made religious systems. Jesus opposes any religious system that prevents people from seeing God clearly. He detests empty ritual, overbearing rules, things that crush you with religious demands, hypocritical judgment of others, worship without good works, and exploitation of people under the guise of faith. And so we can put it like this. Jesus critiques us when we make our faith all about us and God, which is a vertical relationship, while completely neglecting our relationship with others, us and others, which is horizontal relationships. So... I want to explain it like this. The vertical aspect of our faith is all about us and God, right? That's us and God. There's certain things we need to do, and God, we receive from God, and we, we praise God, and there's this us and God thing. And then there's this other aspect of our faith, which is us and how we relate to others. And so Jesus can tell the people, listen to the Pharisees' teaching, because they're really good at the us and God piece. They're really, really good at getting you to understand what it is God requires of you and what you receive from God. They're great at that. But you shouldn't practice what they do because they almost entirely neglect the others, the horizontal line. Really good at the vertical, totally neglect the horizontal. Let me give you an example of this vertical and horizontal faith that God wants for us from Scripture. So let's, let's think about the Ten Commandments. Four of the commandments in the Ten Commandments are about us and God. And six of the commandments are about us and others, how you treat other people. Jesus then comes and, and he simplifies this and he says the greatest commandment is love God and the other is like it, equal to it, love others. Love God, love others. So the faith is both vertical and horizontal. Then Jesus teaches more on this. Jesus says before you pray, 
If you're holding a grudge against someone, you need to go and make that right first. You've got to forgive before you pray. That's Mark eleven twenty five. 25. He says, when you're praying, first forgive anyone you hold a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. This is revolutionary because what, what Jesus is saying is he's saying that horizontal line needs to be just as important as the vertical line. He goes on, he says, you've got to love your enemies. If you love your enemies, then you're like your Father in heaven. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? But love your enemies, then you'll be like your Father in heaven. So he's linking the horizontal with the vertical. Peter also picks up on this. I don't have it in the slide, but I don't know. Peter is a disciple of Jesus, right? And Peter, in one of his letters, he says to husbands, husbands, treat your spouse well. If you don't, God won't hear your prayers. So here's what we do. We tend to make it sort of like, well, as long as we've got the vertical thing going, we're okay. And Jesus challenges that, and he says, no, if your horizontal isn't working, your vertical isn't working. And Jesus goes on, he says, how you treat the least of these is actually how you treat me. Matthew 25. If you care for the least, then you care for me. So what, what the problem is, is the Pharisees are really good at the vertical. And that could be us, too. We go, well, as long as I do my religious duty, then everything's okay. And Jesus challenges that. He confronts that. He says, hey, if you don't have the, if you don't have the horizontal going on, if you don't have us and others, you're missing the heart of the faith. That's actually where you see the anger of Jesus coming at. Man-made religion can take up a lot of time and money and yet deliver very little in the way of loving the world the way Jesus loved the world. Man-made religion can make us feel righteous, pious, dedicated, and devoted, and yet miss the heart of faith entirely. So in the anger of Jesus, we see that Jesus loved much. And his great love allowed for great anger at things that were wrong. And when Jesus was angry, he was angry at the right things for the right reasons. I don't think that Jesus hated the Pharisees or the religious leaders, despite his display of anger. In the passage of the man with the shriveled hand, it said Jesus looked at them with anger and was grieved by their hard hearts. And so he was grieved by the the religious leaders' inability to see that loving others and bringing God close to the brokenhearted was just as important as devotion to religious ritual and practice, which demonstrated love for God. Jesus loved the people of this world, so that means he opposed religious systems that excluded people, that exploited people, that made it difficult for people to come to God and to see him. Michael Frost points out something which I think we should note that gives us an insight into the type of faith and the type of religious practice that Jesus wanted from his disciples. If you go to the Matthew 21 passage where Jesus is clearing out the temple for the second time, once the temple court is emptied of the money changers, it says in Matthew 21, 14, that the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. The verse says they came to him, but they might have already been mingling in the temple, like begging, right? Because that's a great place to beg is when there's a lot of money changing hands. That's a good place to be begging. And so there's a chance that when Jesus drove everyone out, the blind and the lame weren't able to leave as easily, and then they came forward to him. So just imagine the scene, right? As Jesus creates a void in the temple, as the money changers are gone and everyone is gone and the animals are gone, the most broken and needy people come and Jesus heals them. And as he's healing them, a really unlikely choir starts to sing. We read that children, possibly children of the money changers and children of the blind and the lame beggars, burst into praise. That's in Matthew 21, 15, singing Hosanna to the Son of David. 
So I just picture this scene. The businessmen, the customers, the animals, the religious leaders are out of the, outside the temple looking on in anger. And Jesus is standing seemingly alone in his father's house until the disabled and the children come forward. In his father's house, Jesus stands surrounded by the disabled and the children. Those were days when both the disabled and children were seen as the lowest of the society. Their voices were unacknowledged and unheard. When you love the least of these, you love Jesus himself. And of course, the chief priests and the teachers of the law are standing at a distance, disgusted with what they observe, unable to see the beautiful scene, the fulfillment of scripture, and kind of the weird and strange new world that Jesus was ushering in, where those who had no voice are the ones that are now gaining a voice, an audience with the king of kings. The religious elite and the religious leaders are on the outside, like the elder brother looking in angrily as those who they think deserve nothing receive everything. I think that's a beautiful scene, but it changes everything we know about religion. So as citizens of the kingdom, as disciples of our rabbi, we continue this mission of Jesus. We put right what is wrong. If religion is hurting people, we reject it, stand against it. If people are hungry, we feed them. If people are far from God, we demonstrate the love of God for them and plead with them to come to faith. If people are cast aside and marginalized, we give them dignity and respect. We're the ones who turn the world upside down because Jesus, our rabbi, has shown us this way to live. He's shown us what is really important. And he said, the vertical, you and God, is displayed by how you live with others. You can't do the you and God thing and forget about other people. It doesn't work that way. So as disciples, we want to just observe this. Because we're religious people. There's no way to get away from that. We're religious people. And as religious people, we need to be really careful with what we do with religion. I think the anger of Jesus helps us analyze whether our faith truly lines up with God our Father's heart or whether it looks more like the pietistic, legalistic, hypocritical faith of the leaders in Jesus' day. Because the danger is that religion can always be twisted to be all about us and God, making us feel really good about ourselves, our pious devotion, our ability to be set apart, while neglecting the more important matters of the heart, neglecting the very real command from Jesus that to love God requires that you love others. Those two commands can't be separated, although that's what religion often tries to do, is to separate it. Well, as long as you do the God thing, you've got it. And Jesus is like, no, that doesn't work. The anger of Jesus is displayed when religious instruction or religious practice denies God's presence from being experienced and felt by those who most need to experience The anger of Jesus comes when he's grieved by the hardness of religious men's hearts who don't see that their inability to love others due to their own understanding of religious teaching is making them misunderstand the God they claim to be so devoted to. Their focus on that vertical relationship means they're putting religious practice ahead of the well-being of their neighbors and others. I'm going to call the worship team up as, as we close here, but... You know, I'm just drawn back to this thing. For some reason, I felt compelled to to go back to something Jesus said. You cannot pray while holding a grudge against someone else. There's something so revolutionary about that statement. Because we think, well, as long as me and God are good, then everything's good. And Jesus is saying, no, that's actually not how that works at all. If you're living in tension with other people, if you've got bitterness and grudges and anger against other people, you've got to go try and make that right first because otherwise God isn't isn't hearing what you're saying. He does it with spouses as well, saying, husbands, if you don't make things right with your wife, God isn't going to listen to what you're saying. That's sort of a revolutionary thing. 
to think that the way I treat other people also impacts my faith and, and my relationship with, with God. That confronts me, that challenges me, because it's so easy as religious people to go, well, as long as I tick the boxes of my religion, the do's and the don'ts of my whatever part of the denomination I'm in, as long as I check those boxes, everything's good. I go to church on Sunday, I go to Bible study, I do this and I do that. And Jesus is calling us to look a little bit deeper and he's going, but how are your relationships with other people? How are your relationships with the people who are marginalized? How are, are, you, making a, are you making it easy for those on the margins to come into my presence? Those things really matter. It's not just about us and God. And I'm just so challenged and, and convicted when I see that. And I see that Jesus' anger comes against the religious people who think that religion is just about us and God. And they forget that it's actually us, God, and others. And it's all together. Let me pray for us this morning, and then we'll worship together. Lord Jesus, sometimes we just feel so unsettled because we, we see in ourselves some of the, the leanings of the Pharisees who I know weren't trying to do anything wrong. They were, in fact, trying to do everything right, and yet they missed it. They missed it by a lot. And so I ask by your Holy Spirit that we wouldn't be blind to what it is you require and call us to. I pray that our eyes would be opened to the world around us, to see the world the way you see the world, to see people the way you see people, that we would be your agents of change on this earth, that we would be those who walk in hope and in light and in truth, and that we would understand that you love the world. You so love the world that you came and, and died for this world. Would you give us that same love, that we would love the way you love? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.